Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I have never been one to begin my sermon with a joke. Some pastors seem to begin every sermon that way. They swear by the technique. And sure, I've used my share of witty observations and humorous anecdotes, but a pre-packaged formulaic joke has just never been my style. Even today, when in our gospel reading we find the scriptural foundation for one of the most famous joke formulas there is. Right up there with three men who walk into a bar, or people wondering why chickens cross roads, or people who show up unannounced knock-knocking at your door. The joke can go off in any direction, but always starts the same, with the recently departed standing before the pearly gates, conversing with St. Peter. Now, have you ever wondered why of all the saints and angels, it's always, always, always Peter who answers the door? Well, it comes straight from the words of Jesus. It is founded more in the gospel than things we might think are much more important. Because today we are clearly told that Jesus gave to Peter the keys. And who better than the keeper of the keys to answer the gate and conduct the admissions interviews? And still today, the crossed keys are the symbol of St. Peter and more broadly of leadership in the church. Because in addition to inspiring millions of jokes of varying quality, this passage also has a lot to tell us about leadership in the church. Now, lucky for all of us, church governance, or ecclesiastical polity in even churchier words, is also not something that's usually part of my preaching repertoire. Not that I'm not passionate about it, and I don't have many opinions about it, and I will gladly talk to Al for hours to anyone who's interested or too polite to tell me they're not interested. But I would like to think I'm at least wise enough to think that there is usually, in fact, almost always, something better to talk about in the few minutes I get each week in the pulpit. But I do say almost always. Because as a parish and the diocese that we are a part of, we find ourselves in a moment where questions of church leadership loom large. Because in less than two weeks, the convention of this diocese will gather to elect its next leaders, this parish being represented in that convention. And we have not had such a leader for nearly three years at this point. And so when this lesson came up for today in the lectionary, the day we had also planned to talk about the election in coffee hour so that our representatives could understand our hopes for the next leader of this diocese. When this election came up, unbidden for today, I could resist telling the jokes, but I could not resist preaching a bit on leadership in the church. And you still may be thinking, who cares? You still may be thinking, what does it matter for us here in Gilbertsville, who's in charge in far off Albany? Can't we just keep doing what we've always done? 
Can't we just keep gathering and fellowshipping and worshiping and serving our community as Christ leads us to do? And the short answer to that question is yes. No matter who's elected on September 9th, that is exactly what will happen. We will just keep doing what we've always done, what we feel Christ calling us to do. And as long as God calls me to do it, I will keep leading us in doing what Christ calls us to do in this place. But I can only make that promise in the context of another promise I have made. In fact, an oath I have sworn in ordination of canonical obedience to the Bishop of Albany and his successors. And so one reason why our choice on September 9th is important is because a good choice will never bring those promises into conflict. And that is best for everyone. But more importantly, our choice on September 9th matters because Christ Church Gilbertsville is not a hermetically sealed independent unit. It is a member of a body. Just as St. Paul tells us in the epistle today that we are each members of the body of the church. We are each members of the body which is this parish. So this parish is a member of the body which is the Diocese of Albany. And the diocese is a member of the body which is the Episcopal Church. And the church is a member of the body which is the Anglican Communion. And the Anglican Communion is a member of the body which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And from top to bottom and back again, no member and no body can truly be itself without all the others. No body can be full without all the members. And no member can flourish detached from the body. This is what the church is like, at least in the way our tradition envisions it. Now, we must remember that all those members and bodies from top to bottom are human beings. And the church as a human institution, whether we like it or not, requires organization and leadership. Now, the church is, of course, a very special human institution founded by Christ, tasked by Christ with very unique work, but still, it's not to be confused with his kingdom. His kingdom is something bigger than the church. The church is of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. But the church has been tasked with bringing to the world the good news of his kingdom. And Jesus seems to have known that to do that, we would require good leadership. And so in our gospel reading today, I think it is very telling that this is only one of two recorded times that Jesus ever uses the word church. And he does so to establish a leader in it. Now, our friends in the Roman communion would disagree with me. But I do think that when Christ establishes Peter, he's establishing Peter and all the other apostles who were standing there as well. And so the church never had just one leader, but multiple leaders. And the successors of the apostles who lead the church today are just not one who happens to live in the middle of Rome, but are many that live all over the world. And we call those successors to the apostles the bishops. Episcopos in Greek 
It's where our church gets its name, so it is a particularly important thing for us. And so it is no small matter to elect a successor to the apostles to serve us here in this corner of the church. Indeed, as Episcopalians, we are among the few Christians anywhere who are afforded the opportunity or trusted with the responsibility of electing our bishops. Most are appointed by some bishop higher up the line. But we elect them. And so it is all the more important that we understand what a bishop is and what a bishop is for. First of all, like Peter, a bishop must be one who confesses the gospel of Christ, the son of the living God. And not in a way that they've come up with themselves, but in the way that is revealed by the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so as a mark of this, the bishop of all things wears the funny hat, the mitre, roughly shaped like a flame, so that we and the bishop are all reminded that more than any authority the bishop bears, the bishop is under the authority of the Holy Spirit, who came upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost in tongues of fire. Indeed, the bishop, like Peter, is meant to be a rock on which the church is built. Not above the church, but again, under it. Not a capstone, but a foundation stone on which the rest of the church can be firmly founded. And so the bishop bears, as the symbol of his office, the comforting staff of the shepherd, the symbol of gently guiding and guarding, of strengthening and building, the symbol that reminds the bishop and us that he is doing the work of the true rock and the good shepherd that has been delegated to the bishop for a time. And finally, like Peter, the bishop must bear the keys, binding and loosing as necessary, so that the church, and indeed all the world, might better stream into the kingdom of God. And so it is the office of the bishop to confirm and to ordain, to pass along what's been given to the bishop to all the other ministers of the church, the laity, the deacons, and the priests, to give to us, by the laying on of hands, our copies, as it were, of the keys to the kingdom of God, so that the whole church might do the work of Christ. The whole church might open the gates of heaven. The bishop wears no crown of glory, but only the flame of the Holy Spirit that we all have. And the bishop bears no sword to assert control, but only the shepherd's crook to gently guide. And the bishop has no power to build themselves up, but only the power to build up the church. This is the sort of bishop that we want. This is the sort of bishop that we need for our own good and for the good of the whole church. One who, even if we don't always agree with their every decision or policy or belief, one who is nevertheless most devoted to being a humble servant of the servants 
of God. The sad thing is, such a bishop is hard to find. So many of them, just like all of us, would rather wear a crown, would rather swing a sword of their own agenda, would rather use the church to build themselves up rather than use themselves to build the church up. My most fervent prayer in this process is that we will be spared such a bishop, and instead we will trust the Holy Spirit to guide us, even surprisingly so, to that rock, that humble rock, upon which the church, even its bit here in Gilbertsville, in its next generation can be built so that no force can assail against it to the glory of God and to the opening wide of the gates of Christ's kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.